1: Welcome to the latest edition of the Political Party Podcast. This one featuring conservative backbencher Jacob Rees-Mogg, a man who's become something of a folk folk hero in recent years Um, and a real antidote to what people might perceive to be machine politicians and um, the general state of politics. Jacob is someone who's resolutely himself and a very deeply thoughtful man, a very philosophical man and a man that you would expect to have a wide range of views but who expresses himself so well. That just listening to him speak is a is a is a real joy he's a gentleman he's a very fair-minded man he's just superb and i hope you enjoy him. thank you hello good evening hello welcome to the show very exciting hello uh, give me a chief, if this is your first time down here oh excellent hello welcome newcomers and give me a chief if you've been here before oh excellent very aggressive about it it's so lovely a lot of people buying tickets regularly. Well, welcome. Been a phenomenal month, hasn't it? With Ian Duncan Smith resigning. I mean, I was so excited on the night when he resigned. I thought, I can't wait for Prime Minister's Question Time on Wednesday where Corbyn will get to the heart of the matter and ask six questions about air pollution. It's going to be a real thrill, isn't it? But it was amazing watching that budget unravel because obviously the, the subtext of the budget is that it was George Osborne displaying his leadership credentials and Theresa May was sat beside him displaying both of hers. Uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: if you saw any of the footage. Uh, <laughs> but I, I don't know how people feel about Ian with It would be interesting talking to, to Jacob about it in the second half. But I never felt that welfare was really the reason that he'd resigned. I just thought, you know, who would have thought that this famous Euro rebel would have joined a European referendum, found something to rebel against? I mean, to be honest, if that budget wouldn't have happened, he'd have resigned after the Holland game last night. <laughs> that would have been it. Um... But they had, apparently, quite a tense exchange, uh, him and Cameron. I don't know if you read some of the tabloid reporting of it. Where, apparently, um, Cameron launched a four-letter tirade. tirade. Yeah, it wasn't in whole. Uh, a, a four-letter uh, tirade at him. Uh, apparently, at one point... And, obviously, when you hear four-letter words, you're like, I hope it's F, but I really hope it's C. Uh, and, suddenly, it was S. Apparently, he called him a shit. Uh, which, I would just love to hear Cameron say that on the phone. You shit. No, I mean, come on. I mean, this really isn't all here, No, you bloody bastard. No, I, I will box your ears. I really will. I, you rotter. <laughs> just amazing to watch, because Cameron's put out this um, Easter message. I think it's very bizarre. Obviously, the Queen puts out a Christmas message. Party leaders now overuse YouTube, I think. Has anyone seen David Cameron's Christmas message? Thank God for that. No, t- just me. Uh, what's on about it? If you type it into YouTube, the first thing you'll notice is... He's not looking at the camera. He's looking slightly above it. And at first I thought, has he, has he gone blind? <laughs> Some of the sort of David Blunkett eyes going on like that. looked like he was checking the platforms at a train station. Look, I want to wish everyone a very happy Easter. No, the 1714's on platform 18. <laughs> His eyes were sort of distracted from it, and then you get used to it. and It's quite funny, because he's just had Duncan Smith resign over this major issue. And he starts off by saying, look, this Easter, I think we should remember that we should all try and share Christian values. Now, what, like helping those less fortunate than yourself? Or, uh, or something like that. But he, uh, he must have been tempted. I was watching this thinking, I hope that he sort of tries and weaves in a bit of the Christmas message you know, the traditional Christmas, Easter message, rather, into his... I've realised why that sounded so bizarre. through uh, <laughs> some of the traditional Easter message into his, into his broadcast. And, of course, um, you know, I, I feel a, a certain kindred spirit with Jesus. You know, I, too, was betrayed recently, and... Uh, <laughs> Been absolutely crucified for it. Yeah, and I, I think the name of IDS will live on as does Judas. And, you know, if you check his pockets, he will have 30 pieces of silver, which actually exceeds the minimum payment for a personal independence payment. And we will have, we will have half of that back. Yeah. Uh, my favourite. Although, I'll tell you what, this month's sort of opening section features a lot of previous guests. Susan Evans. Was anyone here for the Susan Evans night? Very impressive uh, UKIP... Um, well, former deputy leader of UKIP, but when she came here, she'd just been blocked from being their London mayoral candidate, and now she's been suspended by the party. So she can't stand for the GLA either. So there's a big power struggle going on between her and Farage. And I felt quite sorry for her. She was on the news this week. She said, you know, I've been bullied, effectively, by UKIP top brass, and I've been made to feel like an outsider and and someone who doesn't belong. And I thought, well, it's nice for the shoe to be on the other foot, for once, isn't it? (laughs) See how she likes it. (laughs) Forreys Morgan, does that name ring a bell with anyone here? Forreys Morgan is a young Labour... This story broke this week. He's a young Labour lad. Uh, he was a candidate for Labour, I think, in the last local elections. Just been nicked for drug dealing. Which is amazing. Apparently, that's right, the police um, realised that the, uh, there was a, a strange man behaving very erratically every Wednesday and they, uh, they sort of traced it back to his dealer, this young guy. But his p- family, apparently, are just absolutely gutted, you know, as you would be. They had no idea he joined the Labour Party. <laughs> Thoroughly ashamed of him. Uh, heck of a second job, though, isn't it, Dealer. I mean, if he ever makes it to Parliament, it'd be fantastic. And he's registered a member's interest. I'm sorry, at the start of this um, Home Office Select Committee, Mr Chair, I do have to declare an interest before we cross-examine the Chief of Police. He did nick me last Friday. <laughs> <laughs> um, Nicky Morgan, of course, got heckled at the uh, teachers' conference. I don't know if people saw footage of that. People said that she looked startled after the treatment, but to be fair, she always looks like that, doesn't she? <laughs> That sort of coked-up first coffee of the day morning that she's, uh, she's perfected. I mean, what's, what I find so bizarre about Morgan getting heckled by the teachers is that I've watched over the years successive education secretaries heckled at a teaching conference, and not a single one of them has ever gone, uh-uh, it's your own time you're wasting. <laughs> uh, fingers on lips. Can't believe there are still people talking at the back. But she didn't. Uh, never mind. She, uh, she also came out with something this week. She said, uh, if Brexit happens, then our nation's youth will be devastated. I mean, of all the things that devastate young people, oh, what's up with your Tyrone? He hasn't been himself lately, has it? No, this whole Brexit thing's really really put the kibosh on his dealing. Ridiculous thing to go up with. My favourite, uh, I have to say my favourite slogan at the moment is for uh, Zach Goldsmith, the Conservative candidate to be London Mayor. His slogan is simply, back Zach, which I always add, and crack. (laughs) (laughs) Have a bit of fun with that on Twitter, if you like, next time he tweets you. But he's he's put out a letter uh, to the Tamil community in London, alleging certain things about Sadiq Khan. Now, this is very, very strange. This is what he's written. Uh, to Tamil households in London. Sadiq's party are beginning to adopt policies that will mean higher taxes on your family's heirlooms and belongings. Oh, I know, already it seems a bit weird, doesn't it? Far too often, Tamil households are targeted for burglary due to families owning gold and valuable family heirlooms. I mean, I never knew this until the Tory candidate for London mayor (laughs) fucking spread the word! I mean, if you've got Tamil neighbours, wait till they go out, guys! Firstly, this sounds more like a sort of sales pitch, doesn't it? A sort of cash for goldsmith, if you will. <laughs> Don't start groaning now. There's 20 minutes left. Um, I just think it's just a very sort of odd pitch to go. And you just think, you can't sort of racially profile people in this way. Like, it's gonna, what's it going to do next? Write to the gypsy community. Say, Sadiq's party, to tax stolen lead. So, uh... <laughs> make sure you hide it. Um, Tom Brake Oh, there's another one This is brilliant So Tom Brake's a Lib Dem MP, right? There's only eight of them You must know who he is He's, uh, He's a Lib Dem MP And he campaigned for something called Earth Hour a couple of weeks ago, and he did a big thing in the Sutton Guardian, his local paper, asking people to just turn off their lights for an hour, just simple, just to try and help the planet, right? He put out a statement saying, if people could just turn off their lights and show their support for the future of this planet in any way, on the 19th at 8.30pm, we would all be very grateful. Now, he was setting himself up there, cos the Sutton Guardian waited outside his house uh, <laughs> at... half-eight on the 19th, and all his lights were on, right? <laughs> the quantum about it, and he's put out a statement saying, yeah, I never said I was actually going to do it myself. <laughs> <laughs> said, the paper had written it up, but he said he wasn't able um, to turn off the lights at this particular time, but declined to elaborate why. <laughs> I was shagging, alright? She liked it with the light on now. He would not confirm whether he'd been watching rugby, which coincided with England winning the Six Nations. <laughs> Fucking amazing. Yeah, what a hero. He deserves a round of applause. Um, another Lib Dem who... I don't know if you saw this. Nick Clegg. Uh, it's emerged in David Laws' book. Um, From the heart of government, of course, David Laws, for about seven days. I mean, what a, what a wonderful memoir that's going to be. But apparently Nick Clegg, during uh, their campaign to levy a 5p tax on uh, shopping bags that we all now pay, launched this in a field in Glasgow that turned out to be a notorious dogging site. <laughs> Which, I mean, it's one way to gauge opinion, isn't it? You know, what do you think, guys? 5p tax on uh, on plastic bags? Yeah, one flash for yes, two flashes for no. Would have been incredible if they'd have actually... Imagine Nick Clegg turning up at this site while dogging was going on. That would have been amazing. All we're asking, guys, is that people just pay 5p... At, oh, my God, that's disgusting. Is that Simon Danchuk? <laughs> What's he doing here? <laughs> just incredible. Um... The referendum, of course, is the, is the sort of main story that's rumbling on. Are people excited by it? <laughs> Apparently not. A political night, people are already... Just give me a cheer if you're definitely going to vote in the referendum. Yay. Okay, and if you don't mind, uh, give me a cheer if you'll vote to remain. Yay. And vote to leave. Yay. Okay. Um, the big majority in terms of uh, remain, and um, very passionate as well, it seemed... That doesn't seem to be the sort of general polling coming out of the country, does it? Uh, of the Remain people, give me a cheer if you're a Labour supporter. Hey. Conservative. Hey. Oh, that's changed things quite a lot. Liberal Democrat. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And this is a room of what, 150? You're statistically overrepresented. <laughs> but welcome along. Um, There's a lot of scaremongering on both sides, aren't there, all this Project Fair stuff, and uh, Chris Grayling said that even if we do vote to leave, there will be ten years of uncertainty uh, that follow, the follow-up, of course, to 12 Years a Slave. Uh, (laughs) Less good. Uh, But he's also come out and said um, it will take as long as World War II to sort out the bureaucratic mess if we want to leave. When did we start measuring time in terms of conflicts... Yeah, I know, my sofa's going to be delivered in 15 days. I mean, it's half as time as the Greco-Turkish War of 1897. I just just can't handle it. Um, David uh, Coburn. David Coburn is this uh, phenomenal UKIP. I think he's the leader of Scottish UKIP. He's certainly their only MEP up there. And he comes out with a lot of stuff, and he's been scaremongering about the uh, referendum. He said that if we leave uh, the... um, No, if we stay in the EU, rather, if we stay in the EU our kettles and our toasters um, won't work as well. Uh, He said that he bought a toaster recently and it took longer to do his bread and he said it must be some sort of Euro toaster (laughs) because they're attacking the Great British Breakfast. Now... (laughs) I looked into this, and what it is, is that the EU has put, apparently, some restrictions on high-voltage uh, appliances to save energy and for safety. But you can't, can't just look into every single EU directive and try and make it an attack on the Great British way of life. Have you heard they want to regulate mattress filling. I mean, it's an attack on the Great British bonk. <laughs> it's incredible. Um, but actually, um, the best stuff that uh, Coburn's been coming out with lately isn't about Europe. Uh, it's on the thorny issue of gender. Now, most of us are, are clear... Um, what separates men from women, uh, anatomically. Uh, David Coburn, for some reason, has got involved in this. Uh, and, well, let me read you out his statement. When we talk about the ascent of man, it's not the ascent of a bunch of hairy blokes with male genitalia. It's about the whole lot of us. The long and short of it is that woman is man with a womb. A woman is a special kind of man <laughs> that can produce children. He also then went on to say, I'm a feminist to my bootstraps. A month after calling Ruth Davidson a fat lesbian. <laughs> Why is he getting involved in this? What, what, this just muddies the waters of the European debate, doesn't it? What is the other... Right, gays, just to make it absolutely clear. OK, men have cocks, women have fannies. That was a party political broadcast on behalf of the UK Independence Party. Bizarre campaign he's getting involved in. Um... The SNP, of course, have been, uh, Nicholas Sturgeon was in London just a few weeks ago, uh, preaching to us about how to win a referendum, uh, which is, well, as far as I can see, relatively little experience in. But <laughs> She said we shouldn't get involved in Project Fear and stuff like that, which is, you know, it's all fine, that type of thing, and we can learn lessons from both sides, but very rarely have we been so preached to by the defeated she was a football manager, she'd be insufferable. Yeah, we did. Um, We did lose 3-0 to Arsenal at the weekend, but their three goals effectively amounted to petty scaremongering about our (laughs) defence. I sort of uh, appreciate... Um, and they're trying to make out as well that Scotland's more European than England. This is a, a sort of this is their way into a second Scottish independence referendum. If more people in Scotland vote to stay in the EU than people in England vote to stay in the EU, and you know what, in an old way, Scotland is a bit more European uh, than England. You know, the, the food's a bit funny, the banknotes are weird, and it'd help if they spoke English. <laughs> <laughs> the latest uh, front, of course, on the uh, on the scaremongering front uh, in terms of Europe has been Easter. Does everyone have a good Easter, by the way? i felt for a moment there like people really had had a bad time. Uh, I realise you're not used to me sort of interacting that way. But I hope you did have a good Easter, um, because if we stay in the EU, it may well be your last. Uh, <laughs> according to Vote Leave, uh, who apparently <laughs> put out a press release, no word of a lie, cost of a £10 egg could be reduced by one pound twenty-eight if we leave the EU. Now, firstly, who is buying a £10 Easter egg? <laughs> You see, they're about a quid this year, aren't they? I've had about 15. It's amazing. I suppose if I bought 15 of them, then I'd have saved about three quid. So maybe they've got a point. Um, They put out this official statement at the weekend vote leave. Pro-EU campaigners are constantly rabbiting on about the supposed benefits uh, provided by the EU. Consumers will be hopping mad to find out that the EU is actually making Easter more expensive. If we vote to leave, Easter will taste all the more sweeter next year. Now, yeah, exactly, it's a bit shit, isn't it? You just think, whoever put that statement out, how shit an Easter did his poor family have? <laughs> yes, I would like a roast dinner, darling. Chuck me the English mustard before the EU bans this stuff. <laughs> yeah, enjoy your Easter egg, kids. If we stay in the EU, next year they'll be, fuck, all. You can... I don't want, as well, every single day between now and the referendum to be politicised. April Fool's Day, you know they're trying to ban it cause it mocks the mentally ill. Oh, yeah. May Day, they're turning into Gay Day to promote LGBT rights, mate. Mother's Day, Single Mother's Day. It's social engineering. Well, that didn't go down too well, did it? I think for a a moment there, people thought I was being serious. (laughs) Took on the the, the tempo of a rally. Um, Now, uh, there have been various lists published recently. And and I I think it's good that we just go through a couple of them. Vote Leave uh, produced a list of 250 business supporters of theirs... Um, that supported vote leave and supported Brexit. Two of them immediately has to be taken off. David Ross from Carphone Warehouse and John Caldwell from Phones For You, two of the big players in the mobile phones market. Apparently got very poor reception. Because uh, <laughs> they're on Vodafone. Uh, oh, yeah, it had to be done. You'd have thought less of me had I not done it. Um, but I looked through the list, as I'm sure we all have done, to look at who else was on the list. Um, and these are some of the notable ones. That, uh, the first one that struck me, Arabella Arkwright from the Hat and Arms pub. It just sounds like bullshit, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, Mickey says, you know Mickey plays the fruit, he'll vote Brexit, and all. Oh, he hates the German bastard. yeah. Put us both down, love. Some notable names, Ian Brown and Brian May. But not the two that you think. Uh, Ian Brown of Industrial Maintenance Services, providing engineering solutions to the energy from waste industry. Uh, well, he put a lot of energy into getting wasted, Ian Brown, so it could be him. Uh, now, some of these, I think a lot of people have basically used this Um, survey this petition just to get a bit of free advertising these aren't the sort of people who would hang around with alan partridge john cardwell limb truck wash limited the biggest truck wash in europe in one place with five gantry bays (laughs) (laughs) i love this son and peter walton owner of the largest privately owned vehicle test track in the uk yeah they're both around at the weekend so i'll bring a bottle of red um some of, these, uh, some of the business names that people have put on I'm sure these aren't major players. Protocol, Optimus, Zenith. I mean, these sound like apprentice team names that lost in the final. <laughs> Alan Holtzall from Silver Cross Limited, a pram manufacturer. Yeah, he's sick of being pushed around. Uh, John Mills from JML, you know, the TV, adver- TV shopping channel. Yeah, and apparently if you sign up after him, you now get a free garden claw. And my favourite, uh, Aslan Investments. Yeah, apparently uh, Mr. Tumnus is voting Remain, so he, <laughs> he wasn't included. Of course, the best list of the lot is uh, Corbyn's little list of his, uh, oh, of his supporters. Yeah, have to go, ah, yeah, yeah, well, I've been through it here. Um, now, for those of you that don't know, Jeremy Corbyn's office has divided Labour and beads into five clear groups. Um... Although, whether people should be in these particular groups or not, and whether they should have been... I mean, just one purely political management thing, it's perfectly fine to list your MPs. That's a sensible thing to do. But just in case it gets leaked, just call it A, B, C, D, E. And then you know what it means. Don't basically call them pricks, twats, arseholes and bastards. (laughs) Effectively, what these things mean, right? So the first one is core group. Uh, So they're the most supportive group. There's 19 people in there, in the core. Uh, Dennis Skinner, uh, Diane Abbott... um, really should have her own sort of core group of her own, shouldn't you? Uh, John McDonnell. Uh, what makes me laugh is Jeremy Corbyn is listed. Uh, <laughs> such a rebel he is that they weren't even sure about how he felt about his own leadership. <laughs> <laughs> core group, plus These are the next group up, so they're less... You know, they're the, the least hostile of people that don't support, including Keir Starmer, which can't, simply can't be true, and Tom Watson. Yeah, clever girl. He knows exactly what he's up to, doesn't he? Now, this is my favourite one, core group negative. Um, sounds more like a blood type. <laughs> so, yeah, we've, we've run the test, and you core group negative. I, I, I won't worry about it. It's quite popular, actually, at the moment. Um, Alan Johnson's in there, Hillary Benn, Margaret Beckett. Um, There's a sort of subgroup for morons there that she uh, uh, apparently falls into. My favourite, hostile group. Um, now, this is the worst of the worst, hostile. Uh, let's see what name's on there. Liz Kendall. Friend of the show, uh, Luciana Berger. Friend of the show, uh, <laughs> Stella Creasy. Friend of the show, <laughs> John Woodcock. Friend of the show. Um, now, some people are saying John Woodcock's a nice guy. He's not that hostile, you know. He's he's a he's a reasonable chap. Let's just check his Twitter feed and <laughs> see what they are. So I checked his Twitter feed uh, the day of this Promises Question Time. See if you can make out actually if he's shown his true colours here. He, 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 fucking disaster. <laughs> Worst week for Cameron since he came in and that stupid fucking list makes us into a laughing stock. Um, Simon Danchuk's also on the Hostile Group. He's in his own little group called Hostile But Horny. Uh, <laughs> he's in there. Uh, my favourite list, one you might not be aware of. I don't know if people go on a website called change.org. Um, you shouldn't, really. Uh, but occasionally you see something about a poor dog and you sign it and then you get emailed all these other ones. And there's a... a um, a big petition at the moment that people are tweeting and Facebooking called uh, Ban Cameron from the UK. Uh, it's got about 35,000 signatures, right? So it really is a head of steam. I mean, that, that really will be in his face after winning a, a significant parliamentary majority. But uh, this is what the, the statement at the top of the uh, petition says. David Cameron presents a clear and present danger to the short, medium and long-term interests of the country. Just say the interests of the country, mate. <laughs> That would cover it. Uh, The UK should issue a temporary ban on his return at the conclusion of his holiday in Lanzarote. (laughs) Now, obviously this is... Although, to be fair, the petition is addressed to Theresa May. She gets in the mood for a leadership bid. This could genuinely happen. But um, some of the quote... You know, people can leave these sort of, like, comments underneath feeling really righteous about themselves. William Nichol put... Yeah, I wonder why the BBC isn't uh, covering this uh, petition because yeah, 35,000 people is a lot to you, mate. That's a quiet night at Old Trafford. <laughs> this is not a movement yet. Uh, Mark Woodward. <laughs> yeah, obviously won't happen, but I'll sign it anyway, as it's a brilliant way to tell the spam face blunder cunt that we hate him. <laughs> yeah, raising the level of debate <laughs> on the internet. Lydia, Parry- Lydia Paris, and this is quite a common, uh, <laughs> common comment, he's a danger to humanity. <laughs> and pigs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's going there. Um, I love this one from Andrew Arnold. After the war criminal Tony Blair, friend of the show, um, <laughs> David Cameron is the greatest danger to our country since Hitler. Right. So that's if get me right, this guy thinks it's Hitler, Blair, Cameron, and then what? ISIS? I don't know. Um, this one's not very nice. Ben Oakham says he's a traitor and a moon-faced Eton Ponce. Sounds like a sort of dessert. And this one, just very blunt, just says, he's a knob. Uh, It's by Mr. Duncan Smith of Chingford and Wood Green. Sure people have seen that one. Uh, But ladies and gentlemen, uh, as always, uh, I'm very grateful that you've come down here to uh, share the night with me. We have a a, a wonderful guest uh, in the second half, someone I've been a big fan of uh, for many years. And I think this is one of the shows that a lot of people on Twitter and a lot of friends of mine are really good at that they're going to miss. That'll be a very, very special night with a really cool guest. So, as always, thank you very much for coming, and I'll see you in the second half. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back. Hello, everyone. I can see everyone. Hello. How are you? How are you? Have a good break? <laughs> excellent, excellent. Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, um, I think, uh, firstly, I would say I think we've been very lucky uh, with the standard of the guests uh, that we've had here over the, over the sort of three and so years uh, that I've been doing this show. And occasionally you book a guest that you actually think you're not going to get. Um, uh, that could be true of all of them, to be quite honest. But... Um, I never thought, actually, that um, this evening's guest would agree to do it um, because he's currently, I would say, such a star in in British politics and someone who's transcended uh, simple party affiliation. Of all the people that I've booked, um, so many friends of mine have been genuinely gutted that they couldn't be here tonight to witness um, someone who is, I think it's fair to say, very different uh, to a lot of the... I would say, sort of machine politicians that we're used to, someone who's resolutely themselves, uh, and is very entertaining and very enlightening as a result of it. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a massive welcome to Jacob Rees-Mogg. Thank you very much. Thank oh, you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. <laughs> well, quite the reception there, Jacob. A very popular, uh, very popular man. In fact, um, the Times recently
0: described you as... Um,
1: Posh totty <laughs> uh, 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 uh,
0: Is that... It? Well, there we go, yes. Um, the, the Times uh, has a certain family connection, so they tend to be quite nice about me. Day, so. <laughs> um, but there is... You, I suppose you're becoming a sex symbol. Is that something that you... I think that's inconceivable. <laughs> you're being very kind, because I've come along, but I I, I I think I'm no Marilyn Monroe. No, but I think um, a lot of um, ladies... and. Uh,
1: Probably a few chaps as well. Um, there's something quite um, beguiling about you, I think, that people find. Thank you. I, I will report back to my wife. In <laughs> Thank you.
0: But do you, do you have people sort of uh, approaching you in the street? Do you... what, what, unfortunately, not throwing eggs at me, by and large. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, occasionally, people come up to me. I had, uh, certainly with the Brexit thing, people have been coming up and saying... I hope that we get out of Europe, which I'm very pleased by. I was a bit disappointed by this audience. I'm sorry to say this so early on. Uh, the, 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 careful, the, response but... on the response on Brexit was very disappointing. So, I've got 20 minutes to have a go on that. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of out there in the country, how do you feel the campaign's going? Oh, on Brexit, it's very hmm. encouraging. Um, uh, the, that, uh, the yeah, not on the totty thing. <laughs> no, no, that, that's probably more your area of expertise of mine. Um, no, it's, 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 it's very encouraging. I was campaigning in my constituency at the weekend and lots of people were coming up very enthusiastic for regaining their independence. And the Remain campaign's desperate. I mean, this stuff on inter being banned if um, we leave the EU can't be true. I mean, you don't have to get permission from the EU to buy railway tickets. It's not that bad. <laughs> but, but what about Easter eggs being more expensive under the EU? I mean, it, it's on both sides, isn't it, this sort of thing? Uh, I I think that was an opportunity to say expensive. I think that was a pun around Easter. (laughs) But do you find the, the tone of the
1: debate so far has been broadly okay? Do you think it's been a little too much in the gutter, a little bit too much personal? I mean, what are your feelings about the tone of it all?
0: It's a very serious matter, and when people are arguing about important things, the future of the country for a generation, it's going to be an energetic, um, high-voltage campaign. Well, low-voltage, because the EU is cutting our voltage. But but, but, um, (laughs) otherwise, high-voltage campaign.
1: Do you get a sense from... I mean, in your own constituency, some people would say, well, it's a Conservative seat. Perhaps then people are more likely to favour... Brexit than they would the opposite? Have you campaigned elsewhere in the country? Are you getting a mood out there?
0: Um, my seat was Labour up until 2010, so it's not uh, a safe, conservative seat. And actually, UKIP seemed to do very well in my seat in the old Labour areas at the last general election. So I think there are a lot of Labour members... And sub- Well, if you look at the Labour Party, the hierarchy of the Labour Party is very pro-Europe, but when you look at opinion polls of their members... Yeah. Um, uh, of the electorate, sorry, Uh, they're just as split as the rest of the country. So I I think it's um, not just a Tory campaign.
1: And have you spoken to
0: uh, comrades in the Labour Party? (laughs) Yes, there are some excellent uh, Brexit supporters uh, in the Labour Party, like um, Kate Hoey and so on.
1: Because a lot of people think, actually, you know, Corbyn in the past has been anti-EU, as has John McDonnell, and mm. they simply don't want to rock the Labour boat too early on this referendum. I mean, have you ever had any dealings with Jeremy
0: Corbyn? Have you ever sounded him out on the EU? No, I've never discussed the EU with Jeremy Corbyn. Um, I'm not sure he'd value my opinion. <laughs> That's true of a lot of us. Um, <laughs> we kindred spirits in that regard. Um,
1: I mean, I just... The EU referendum seems like such a major... I mean, it is, It's such a big question to put to people... And I think all of us in this room, no matter what side we're on, certainly voting to leave is a, a, a step into the unknown. I mean, it, it might be a, a sort of known unknown, as Sir Rumsfeld might have it, but nevertheless, it's a territory that in my lifetime we've never been in before. Um, what can you say to reassure me that if I do wake up on the morning of the 24th and we vote to leave the EU, that you know, the world's not going to end and...
0: The world will carry on spinning on its axis. Um, yeah. You will have a job uh, as much Do, as... Doing comedy. Yes. Well, <laughs> I, 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 that's not up to me. That's up to your audience. There's a treaty provision for leaving. It sets out a two-year period under Article 50 of the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union. Uh, that can be followed through. The thing to remember is that if we stay, we are staying in what has become a European superstate, And we have to decide, is our future as a country called Europe, or as a country called the United Kingdom. That's what we will be deciding on the 23rd of June. Because David Cameron got, uh, in his deal, uh, an opt-out on ever close of Union. It was something you
1: described as pretty thin gruel. Um, I actually thought that was quite politically significant, and that he'd underplayed that particular part of the deal. Uh, you obviously disagree, but does that not sort of demonstrably keep Britain out of a super state?
0: No, unfortunately it doesn't, because the... Um, ever closer union is in the preamble to the treaties and the preamble to the treaties is not the law of the treaties what matters is what is in the body of the treaties which creates the ever closer union not the Uh, wrapping on the outside. Um, As an example of preambles not meaning much, the 1911 Parliament Act says that it's a temporary measure until a more democratic means of having an upper chamber is found. Well, here we are 105 years on, and it's still a temporary measure. Uh, the, The preambles are not the law. The law is what's in the body of the treaties, and that has created a single European state, effectively. It's got the powers of the state. Its law is superior to our law. It's got the symbols of a state with its flag and its presidents and so on. And that is a future that some people may want. Some people may believe that Europe is the country uh, to which they wish to belong. I don't. I want my country to be the United Kingdom. Um, And so the uncertainty on the 24th of June is actually just as great if you're taking this leap in the dark towards a single European nation whereas we could stay as the United Kingdom, and I think that would be preferable. But people still feel more anxious about
1: that side of the debate, don't they? It's something that I think um, Brexiteers or, I don't know,
0: Leavers... The the 60 million Brexiteers, (laughs) that's a very good line. Um, uh, No, I I, I don't think so. I think the FAIR campaign has fortunately reached the stage of being absolutely ridiculous, that that, um, there was... There are intelligent concerns to raise. Um, it was very interesting. The Treasury Select Committee saw one of the members of the Financial Policy Committee, and in his written evidence, he hadn't mentioned Brexit as a risk to the economy. And when questioned, he said that was because it wasn't a medium or long term risk. There may be a little volatility around the events. And I think that's a perfectly rational line to take. But the scare stories. Have just become silly. It doesn't make any difference to NATO. That remains the essence uh, of our security. We will carry on trading with um, Europe. That uh, one minister said our trade would go to zero. I mean, admittedly, she then apologised for it a couple of days later. But of course, our trade won't go to zero. It's absolutely ridiculous. And so, I think the the fair campaign has gone from being something that people have taken quite seriously to one where people are now laughing at it. And the interrailing one was just silly. <laughs> How are you dealing with this then as a party? Because it must be, it must be quite tricky
1: to sit alongside people in the, the, on the green benches in Parliament and in the tea rooms and in the corridors that you're now engaged in this sort of quite deep ideological war with where you're saying that the stuff they're saying is silly and then you're, you're still sort of unified as a party but then you're, dis, you know, you're in a state of disunity because of the European referendum. Is the Tory party in Parliament holding together okay?
0: Yes, it is. Uh, The thing about politics, as you know perfectly well, because you've interviewed a great range of politicians, is that you may disagree very strongly ideologically with people over a certain issue. But that doesn't mean that you don't value their views in other areas or think that they are good and decent people. When you read out your list of people you've interviewed, including the Labour ones, most of them I think are really first class individuals. And if we have to have a Labour government, they would be um, the people you would hope would be running it because they're as good as you get on that side of the argument. I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I, three I, different caveats in there. <laughs> I, 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 just in case you thought I wanted a Labour government, I wouldn't want to mislead you. Uh, 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 and and, and the, 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 the same is true. There are people who've held very long-standing European views who I've disagreed with for decades, let alone over the last few weeks.
1: It must be tricky when it's in your own party, then. You're sat there watching someone speak at the dispatch box that you're normally relatively loyal to, and... What they're saying is perhaps making you feel quite angry. By, not by nature, a very angry person. <laughs> but maybe frustrated.
0: Well, um, not by nature, I meant in the specific. It, it, yes, yes, no, na- nature will be there whether I'm frustrated or not. Uh, um, uh, no, no, there's always the opportunity to to respond. And with Ian Duncan Smith then, with his resignation, because there
1: seems to be slight confusion. I mean, he said that it was absolutely about the budget and about the attack on PIP. Other people have said this in the context of the European referendum. I think it's hard not to see it in that context or perhaps in some sort of Tory leadership um, contest that would follow in his allegiance, perhaps against, not necessarily with Boris, but against George Osborne. What's your take on on why he left?
0: Um, I think it's very easy to understand why the narrative has come about around the EU because Ian Duncan Smith has been anti-European Union all his political life. But I think he's a really very remarkable man. I think that after he stopped being leader of the party and he went to Glasgow and he saw the deprivation there, he decided that his whole political career was now going to be about reforming the welfare system. And that is absolutely essential to who he is. For years, he said nothing about the EU. He just got on with what he was trying to do. And I think there is an issue... Uh, with the ring-fencing of so many parts of the budget that the one part that was continually being squeezed were for people of working age, whether able-bodied or disabled, and that he found that that had become um, unsupportable. And I think that was all completely genuine uh, and very important, actually. Uh, I think there are politicians, and on the Labour side, Frank Field is, is an equivalent, who do devote their lives to one big issue and try and make sure that they can improve things in that area. And so I believe in Duncan Smith's explanations. I, I think it's completely valid, and it's not a European sideshow. It's not about George Osborne's uh, leadership ambitions. I always felt,
1: actually, uh, and I agree with what you said, that Ian Duncan smith been quite harshly treated by the public, really. You know, he, he had set up the Centre for Social Justice. He genuinely does have an interest in alleviating poverty. We could argue about whether the policies that he promoted helped or not. But nevertheless, I think his, um, his genuine interest in the area can't be denied. But obviously in politics, there are subtexts and there are individuals. And I, I just wonder what his relationship with Cameron and Osborne was really like. Because you'd hear rumours that Osborne had said he wasn't very bright in a particular book and that that had festered away. Did you ever pick up on any of that stuff?
0: Um, No. Uh, I knew that in about 2012 um, Ian Duncan Smith had been offered a different post and that he had turned it down and had said quite clearly to the Prime Minister that if he couldn't be um, Work and Pension Secretary he wasn't interested in being in the government. So I knew there had been that element of underlying tension and I knew of course the reports of what George Osborne was reported to have said But any disagreements they kept quite private. Why are you giggling? I mean, I know it's (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: because he he, he apparently had been quite rude about him, hadn't he? Well, um, um, certainly questioned his his intellect and his intelligence.
0: Mm. Uh, I mean, that was reported. Um, Whether it was accurately reported, I don't don't know, but that was certainly reported.
1: Because I was, I was at the budget the other week. I was up in the public gallery, and it was a phenomenal. I mean, I looked forward to it like a cup final. Um, it just The whole day was fantastic. I prefer it to a cup final. But that's <laughs> it was uh, just phenomenal to watch a budget live. And at the time, actually, you could see perhaps a row over welfare coming because it was so clearly signposted in the budget. But broadly, you thought, well, this is Osborne laying out his stall. From where you were sat in there, I mean, as a Conservative MP, did it, did it give you heart? Did it make you excited?
0: The budget is always an exciting occasion, That the Chancellor commands the stage. He um, sets it out in the way he wants to, in the order he wants to, normally with the biggest things coming uh, at the end. Um, there were some elements of it that were extremely welcome and appealed to uh, his target audience, and I think economically very beneficial. Um, There were some bits of it that I wasn't so excited about. I'm not a great fan of a sugar tax, for example. Because it's a liberal? Oh, because I don't think it answers the problem. There Um, there was a very good article in the um, Daily Telegraph two or three weeks ago by Alistair Heath uh, pointing out that fizzy drink consumption has declined by 19% from 2011 to 2014, and sugar consumption by just under 10% in the same period without the need for a sugar tax. So, actually, people are quite capable of leading their lives for themselves and that taxation is there to provide the money the government needs to provide public services, not to tell us all how to lead our lives. Uh, and you get the incongruity that I hope people have been buying lots of gins and tonics at the bar, but their, their gin has frozen in price and their tonic's gone up. This isn't, this isn't necessarily a very sensible approach. No, but I, there, there is a... There. I mean, I quite like gin and tonics. So I'm quite pleased the gin has remained frozen in price. I'm just not, it's, I don't want that to go up. But in, in terms of which does more harm to you, it's probably the alcohol rather than a little bit of sugar. It is, but then maybe the reduction in sugar consumption has
1: been in different um, income groups and perhaps it's those who are worse off that are disproportionately being affected by obesity, etc. And that is where the was trying to sort of target them.
0: So, but then there's not much logic in particularly targeting fizzy drinks and not targeting chocolate or other things that are just as high in sugar?
1: Maybe. Well, the thing, it was the sort of thing that I thought was a classic sort of centre-ground policy, I thought it was a bit of a, a daring... It, you know what? Gordon, George Osborne reminds me so much of Gordon Brown, because he, even the way he structures his budgets, he sets out the big themes, and then he'll do right at the end these big announcements on the themes that he's outlined, and then there'll be some sort of just bizarre announcement out of nowhere... And it was the sugar tax. Was holy shit? No one saw this coming, and it felt purely because it was a surprise. Therefore, it was good, and these reasons sounded fairly logical. I mean, if it stops people consuming a lot of sugar, is that not a good thing?
0: I don't think it's the government's job. I think that if people want to have a bit of sugar, that's up to them. And if they get hyperactive kids, morbidly obese, falling on each other out of trees because they
1: have the. They're yeah, too fat I, I, to get up there. They have some yeah, yeah. Dr. Pepper. They get up there, then they fall. I don't know. I've turned into Boris Johnson. Like, they're falling out of shoes. I, I, I,
0: yes, yes. I, I, I don't find this is a great problem as I walk across St James's Park with children falling out of <laughs> shoes on my head. I, 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 I think if it were, you might need to implement other measures.
1: Yeah, St James's Park it, It's very different to a lot of the parks um, <laughs> around. Um, uh, I. I it's just interesting, isn't it, Find it because a lot of people on the left were against it, and they said that this is, uh, you know, this is an attack on poor people. It's an indirect tax on those uh, on the lowest incomes. Um, a lot of people you know, from the Conservative side say it's simply not the government's job to be doing stuff like this. But I mean, in terms of the health of the nation, how far should the government
0: go, do you think? It's a very interesting question, because taxes on uh, fizzy drinks and, indeed, on cigarettes are aggressive taxes. They do fall more proportionately on the poorest in society than on the richest. I think the case for tobacco taxes is extremely well made because the health consequences are, as far as one can tell, absolute. Yeah. That, that there isn't a safe level of smoking and, therefore, you're not depriving people of a very... Well, perhaps one cigarette a year, but you're, yeah. you're not... What if depri- I've cut down, but I'll tell my missus I've given up? Uh, 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 I don't think you're alone in that. I think Nick Clegg was in the same position, <laughs> but, um, uh, um, So I think I think the tobacco tax is absolutely justifiable. It's very hard with uh, fizzy drinks because a modest consumption of fizzy drinks does not do anybody any harm. Uh, Vast imbibing of it may make them a bit podgy, but uh, I'm not sure that's the job of the government to stop. I mean, this is
1: in terms then of, of of where you would sit or stand on the conservative wing. Are you sort of at the slight sort of libertarian end? Would you say?
0: Um, Liberal rather than libertarian. Uh, I broadly believe people should be allowed to get on with their own lives as far as possible, that the state should only intervene where it needs to. But I'd caveat that by saying that where the state intervenes already and it works, I don't see any pressing need to liberalise it. You take the example of gambling... Um, that actually our gambling laws prevent a lot of problem gambling, and gambling can be very destructive for families. So if you were an ideological liberal, you'd probably think our laws were too onerous. But I wouldn't particularly change them, because I think we have a system that broadly works. So it's perhaps liberalism um, uh, uh, tempered with a little Toryism. Which is the sort of great heart, really, of the the Conservative
1: Party, certainly in my lifetime. I thought I could hear someone's... I know. I'm sorry about that. It's not not
0: your fault. This this happens at all my uh, events. Actually, Um, I think um, I'm normally addressing groups of conservatives. Even then, I I think they're
1: probably having a sugar crash. Uh, (laughs) Who was that? Was that genuine? (laughs) Holy
0: shit! Who is it? So it's, it's all right, I can't see you. The lights are so <laughs> bright, so, so you're safe. Are, are, you, are you OK? Do you need... Yeah, yeah, I, uh, I was in Moscow for
1: the long weekend, so I'm a bit tired. <laughs> <laughs> Rescue Dad. Uh, not a fucking stag, there, yeah. are geezer?
0: Um, Well, (laughs) if it's any any reassurance, my wife, if she were here, would probably be falling asleep, because we have a a five-week-old baby, and therefore similar reasons for for falling asleep when listening Uh, to your uh, husband. uh, (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very
1: much. Congratulations. Uh, How do you find, then, juggling fatherhood with the demands of being a, a politician?
0: Um, well, I'm afraid my children get raped into helping me um, campaign. They're all very good. Well, the five week old baby isn't yet, but they're, 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 um, they're very good at delivering and doing all those sorts of things. I mean, it's a it's, uh, uh, very helpful kind of children. Uh, is it true? Because I don't know whether this is an urban myth or not, but not only have you been
1: campaigning with your children, but in 1997 in Fife, when you stood yeah. up there, that you
0: took your nanny campaigning as well. Oh, yes, this is absolutely true. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I'm glad to say Nanny was out campaigning with me on Saturday for Brexit. and She's a, she's a staunch Brexiter. She's um, not still your nanny, though. but she's now nanny to my children. <laughs> but Nanny's amazing. She's looked after my family for 50 years, and she is now looking after my five children. That's, I think, pretty impressive. And I'm very proud of her, that she's a very important part of the family. Um, and all my family have supported me in my various elections, um, which I'm very fortunate about. And it, it, so in 1997, which must have
1: been a very difficult election standing for a Conservative anywhere in the country, you're standing in Scotland um, with the, the most English of all English accents and your nanny. I mean, how did that... How did that, <laughs>
0: how did that sort of go down up there? Uh, the people in Central Fife were absolutely charming. Um, uh, uh, they're, they're really... They're, I'm not... Do you know, I'm not being sarcastic and I'm not being political about this. Um, most of them laughed when I knocked on the door and said they didn't realize the Tories normally stood in this seat. And uh, that, therefore, that I was bothering seemed to go down tolerably well, but it didn't increase their chances of voting for me. I mean, it, it, it was a really interesting experience, and it shows the um, fundamental good nature of the British electorate, actually, uh, that they expect people to go around and knock on their door during an election campaign and ask for their vote, uh, even if there is no chance of them receiving it. <laughs> What was it, uh, obviously your you father was a, was a major figure in journalism
1: and, and a member of the House of Lords and uh, some of his articles I enjoyed reading when I was first getting involved in politics. Um, do you, is it fair to say that you get your politics from your father or do you differ from him at all, do you think, politically?
0: Oh, my father was very influential in my political uh, views um, and we were very close in our, our political views. Um, uh, in, I mean, there were some disagreements over the years, um, I was more Eurosceptic than he was uh, when I was uh, younger, but by the time he died, we were just as Eurosceptic as each other. So um, uh, I'm not having a sales. Uh, I, I know. I, I, know, I, there's I, there, I know there's been. over there was. There's been a lot of speculation about the views of dead people in the um, Brexit campaign. So I'm not going to say what my father would have done. Cause how can I know for certain? Um, but no, no, he was a very important influence on my political uh, development.
1: And in terms of getting into politics relatively
0: young, how old would you say you were when you first started perhaps thinking politically in any, to any degree? It's a very hard question to, to know the answer to because um, politics was the standard conversation of the rees family dinner. I mean, that that um, My father was so heavily involved. A lot of our visitors were political uh, figures. Um, uh, my brother's godmother is Shirley Williams. My godfather was Norman St. So there, there, there was a lot of political uh, happenings within the family, and so really it was always being discussed. And then, at what age do you start to think about your own political views, do you think? Is that uh, secondary school age? Um, Probably a bit earlier, actually. I became a great fan of Margaret Thatcher. Uh, um, It's not going down very well with this audience. (laughs) I'm surprised. Um, uh, um, and, and, And so, but I... I became a great fan of hers before I knew very much about what she was doing, um, and then she won the Falklands, and I thought she walked on water, and that's, uh, by which time I was about twelve. Uh, and so, as I got older, I knew more of what she was doing and became even more of an admirer, which will get an even better. With <laughs> so, uh,
1: and then, at what point
0: do you join the party? I mean, how old? How old you I joined you the visit? party quite Didn't young. Um, I joined the party, I think, at about twelve. Um, and amazing. I was too young to join the Young Conservatives. You couldn't join the Young Conservatives <laughs> until you were 16, so I had to join the proper party. We <laughs> yeah. I think the same applied to William
1: Pitt when he was, <laughs> <laughs> when he was knocking about. because I, I, I'm always fascinated by people who are, who are political young... Um, because I joined the Labour Party when I was 15, and I, I joined the Socialist Worker Party when I was 14 and left when I was 14 in one week. Um, so you're big... a secret Corbynista? Oh, absolutely not. No, no, no. I, I, I drifted right very young. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I've always... Because I remember the 1992 election as a, and I remember John Major handing... Uh, sorry, Thatcher handing over to Major in So I must have only been seven when that happened. I was been being very aware of stuff that was going on. And I don't know whether it's a, a sort of character trait of... Just some people... Obviously, your father was a major influence, but what's interesting to people who, I suppose, have that in common with me, is that what the hell is it that makes a seven-year-old boy want to put a sticker in his window for a political party or write to an MP or write to a prime minister? Those those sort of... I guess there's something... Well, I'm now interviewing myself. Um, <laughs> it, it's much more interesting, so carry on. Well, I think there's something... Uh, there's something exciting about the idea that, firstly, you have power to sort of change something, and then that you might actually like the people that are in charge. I think those two things, as a kid, were quite um, intoxicating. The idea that you could vote for someone, and you liked them, they do stuff that you agreed with. I can't believe more people aren't excited about it, even now. Um, I mean, do you find... In your local constituency party, do you have lots of young members? Uh, are people more excited by politics now?
0: No, uh, we've got very few young members. Um, but when I get invited to go to schools, which I obviously do quite a bit of in my constituency, and in the debates the schools organised during the general election, uh, and in the Scottish referendum, there was huge interest uh, amongst people of school and school-leaving age. Uh, I think the reason younger people are not getting involved is the fault of politicians, not of the young people. I think we are not saying things that are exciting and interesting. We're not necessarily coming up with policies that benefit them because... Taxing the, sugar drink. the sugary drinks. <laughs> sugary drinks. But, but the, the, the older people are much more consistent voters, yeah. and therefore policy has a bias towards the older age groups rather than the younger age groups. And I think that has made younger people less interested. Um, I would say this, wouldn't I? It always comes back to Europe. I think partly that so much is now decided beyond the Westminster level that people quite realistically realise that their vote won't make the difference that you and I thought it would make when we were first getting involved in politics, and I think that is a great pity. I think the electorate is um, extremely sensible about what voting will do, and people vote more in elections that really matter, that Mm. change things, and that because general elections have changed things less the turnout has tended to decline.
1: Why? Because it seems as though Jeremy Corbyn, on some level, has mobilised some young people somewhere. Uh, Do you think... uh, One of them is still fighting the war over there. Uh, Do you you think maybe young people are less likely to be conservatives, or is that a a lazy generalisation?
0: I think the way you phrase yourself is absolutely spot on. He has mobilised some young people somewhere. (laughs) And that, out of a very small electorate, seemed to be a very large number but um, somebody said he'd managed to find all 200,000 socialists in the country and get them to vote for him, and yeah. th- th- but that's it. <laughs> uh, and of those, about half were young. And actually, the proportion of the younger voters, it's not very high. It's not, a, it's not that type of mass um, movement. Um, are younger people intrinsically more left-wing than uh, older people? I think it depends really on who's in government. Uh, I think there is a natural tendency for younger people to seek change. And so the thing that makes the Tories popular with the young is when we're in opposition for a long time. (laughs) But I'd rather be in government than um, enormously popular with the young if the choice were as straightforward as that. I'm happy for Jeremy Corbyn to be very popular with the young and permanently in opposition. (laughs) 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 An eminently achievable
1: wish, I think. Um, (laughs) watch Corbyn from across the dispatch box? What What's your assessment of him as, a, as an opposition leader? Um,
0: when I, I'm going to be nice about Mr Corbyn. Uh, um, when he was on the back benches, he was extremely impressive because he stood up for issues that other people weren't talking about and he argued them very passionately and there is a place for MPs like that. I, I think the greatest of them in my sort of political memory was Tam Diel. Mm who would happily take on unpopular causes and would make sure that they were looked into and and people took them seriously, and that's a very important role. Uh, As leader of the opposition, um, he doesn't necessarily have the range that makes him effective at Prime Minister's questions, that his focus seems to be too narrow, and that this is very noble in its way, because what he's talking about, you mentioned in your first half air quality, rather than all the difficulties that... the government was facing air quality is undoubtedly important and nitrous oxides are killing people actually i can blame the european union again so i'll have a quick jibe <laughs> at them but that that wasn't the occasion for it he needed to be holding the prime minister to count on a on a broader canvas and that bit he is not not doing and it may be he doesn't want to do it or it may be simply that it's beyond his range and that i don't know Is there, because there's a lot of talk amongst, I would say, the political class that um, no matter who you support,
1: a government needs a strong opposition for the sake of the country and actually for the sake of the government. Is that a view that is held widely on Conservative benches, do you think?
0: Yes, I think it is. I think most people recognise that a strong opposition is actually good for government and the opposition that we're getting in the House of Commons at the moment is more from the Scottish National Party rather than from the Labour Party. What's your relationship with them like? Because I've, I've, I've got to know a, a few SNP MPs, and they,
1: they're quite fond of you.
0: Do you know, I think the SNP and the House of Commons are absolutely brilliant. <laughs> I'm I, I, full of admiration for them. They turn up. They debate. <laughs> well, well it's, quite, it's quite helpful. If you look, if you look at... Uh, you know, you, you look at the Labour benches on a quiet afternoon, and they're pretty empty, and the SNP are there in bigger numbers. Um, they debate... They're good debaters. They enjoy the spirit of debate. They take Parliament seriously. They think it can do things. They use Parliament uh, effectively. Um, I think they've made a real and important contribution to the quality uh, of parliamentary life. And a lot of them are very nice, interesting people. I, well, I think sort of, there seems to be a, a mutual respect between between you and them. Uh, for people that,
1: and I think it, it's. Partly the reasons you outlined, but also a genuine belief in Parliament as a as a vital tool for holding the government to account. And that's something that they're very good at. It's also something you're very good at. I mean, some people would say that um, you're not the most loyal MP and that you, all the all the characters that you found so laudable about Tom DL and SNP MPs, that you, you embody yourself. Are you not afraid to speak your mind but do it in a respectful way? I mean, is that a position you're comfortable with?
0: I, I'm... I am broadly very loyal to the leadership of the Conservative Party and in the overwhelming majority of votes, I vote with the Conservative Party. But I think my job as a Member of Parliament is to hold the government to account and represent my constituents. And if on something of particular importance, I think the government is going in the wrong direction, it is my job to hold the government to account regardless of the fact that I sit on the same benches. And I've tended to focus on constitutional and European issues because if you change the Constitution, it is very rare that you change it back again. Mm. If you have a, I'll vote with the government on the sugar tax. I think the sugar tax is balmy, in case we haven't got that message earlier. But I'll vote with the government because a new government can reverse the sugar tax and it's, it's the ordinary run-of-the-mill political decision that the government has the right to expect my support for. I was elected as a Conservative. I wasn't elected because the people of North East Somerset thought it'd be fun to have Jacob Rees-Mogg. I, 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 Some of them I, might. I, 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 well, <laughs> <laughs> members of my immediate family. But, um, <laughs> uh, the more charitable ones. But, but um, uh, I know that I'm elected because of the badge that I wear at an election, and therefore I ought routinely to support the government. I think constitutional and European issues are different because they're permanent. If we agree to do something and it becomes a European law, that can't then be reversed by of vote of the British Parliament. So
1: what relationship do you have with the whips, then? Do they come up you and say, come on, Jacob, for crying out loud, drop it, mate?
0: No. Um, I have a very friendly relationship with the whip. Um, uh, th- th- everybody has an individual whip who um, uh, they speak to, and um, mine is Gavin Barwell, who I've known a long time, extremely intelligent, capable uh, politician. Um... He knows that most of the time I will be supporting the government, that I am almost invariably there to vote. I'm not sort of wandering off uh, um, doing other things. I think that when Parliament's sitting, it's my job to be there. Um, but if it's an issue when I'm not going to support the government, I tell him in advance, and, and he knows. Um, if they need somebody to make a long speech to... Do some, you know, a little bit of filibustering, I'm their man, and that's a sort of, sort of bit of a quid well, pro quo. I was going to come on to that, because that's
1: something that's kind of become your trademark, really. I mean, obviously filibustering has existed as long as Parliament has, um, but you're the sort of modern embodiment of the, of the probably the best filibusterer in Britain, <laughs> um, some would say. So when, the whips, I presume come to you and say, look, we need you to talk this bill out, just talk for as long as possible, what's the longest filibuster you've been involved in, do you know?
0: I do, yes. How long was that? Um, altogether, there we had some divisions in between and various other distractions. Uh, and it was in committee rather than on the floor of the House. I think I did four hours. Um, on uh, uh, Well, it was a bill, and I was doing it entirely at the request of, of the whips. It was a bill that was going to reverse all the NHS reforms the government had introduced and it was a private member's bill. There is no way a private member's bill is ever going to overturn a major plank of government policy. Um, But uh, David Nuttall had done, I think, on the same bill, two hours merely on whether we should sit on a Wednesday or a Thursday (laughs) afternoon. Um, (laughs) How did you make that last for two hours? I mean, actually, Thursdays are... No, they're not. No, Wednesdays... (laughs) I think we got on to discussing the concept of time. I mean, it was... (laughs) So if you're going to do it, like a four, I
1: mean, because a one-hour shift would be enough for most people, wouldn't it? If you're going in for four hours, do you prepare it? Is there any sort of level of rehearsal beforehand? F- four, f-
0: four hours, um, I had done some preparatory work around the subject. And I mean around the subject. Yeah. By, I mean, <laughs> I it's uh, but you also, it, it's, it's actually it's a team effort, because you get lots of interventions from your own side yeah. which keep you keep you going, and give you another point and give you a chance to have a sip of water or something. And I was quite lucky because of the way the uh, votes in the House went that day. Then you got a quarter of an hour gap between uh, d- d- um, parts of the, of the debate. Um, I, only, I only stopped in the end because the Labour benches had gone home and therefore, <laughs> therefore we, had eno- we, we, we had enough votes to close down the debate for the day.
1: I mean, when it happens... Firstly, the person whose 10-minute rule bill it is must be outraged. So they sit there going,
0: come on, uh, please, this is important. I know, I know. It was um, poor old Clive Efford um, who was presenting the bill. But as I now know, but didn't then, it was actually all organised by the Labour whips. That they It was straightforward, good, honest party politics. The <laughs> Labour whips wanted a bill that would embarrass the government by trying to reverse their NHS reforms the government didn't want it, so they got... Uh, a, a few placemen to uh, speak for hours. I, mean, I had nothing better to do on a quiet Friday afternoon or whatever day of the week it was, we sat.
1: Wednesday or Thursday? I <laughs> well, May, yeah, yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a remarkable skill, because I dare say that a lot of politicians, a lot of people just couldn't do it for that long. I mean, that's, four hours is about the time it takes an averagely fit person to run a London marathon, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's a long time to be, to be going for. Do you, are you in danger of repeating
0: yourself? I find it much easier to speak for four hours than I possibly find it to run the London Marathon, which is be <laughs> completely beyond my capabilities. Um, if you repeat yourself, you can be ruled out of order. So you've got to say new things, by and large, for the whole time. It's it, it is it's an interesting intellectual challenge in its way, though one of a specialist taste, I think. I mean- I, I love stuff like that, but uh, maybe some of Parliament's harsher
1: critics might say that it's, it's slightly arcane and, and perhaps a, a waste of time. I mean, does it fulfil a, a vital constitutional function?
0: Um, it doesn't normally happen in the way that it happened. That was an accident of coalition because normally the government just has the votes to make sure that a bill it really dislikes doesn't get into committee and can vote it down, can kill it off. Um, because of coalition, some bills got through that were entirely opposed to government policy and, therefore, other means had to be used to to, to do it. Is it um, a, a great advert for Parliament? Not really, no. It, it, it's a technique that used, needs to be used sparingly, uh, otherwise we begin to look ridiculous. So I'm, I'm aware that it's not necessarily a great advert for modern politics. Mind you, I might not be a great advert for modern politics. That's <laughs> oh, different no I point. think you
1: are. I, think, I, think, I, think, I, think, I think, honestly... Uh, A lot of people see you as a a real beacon of hope at the moment because um, so many politicians try and be someone else and you're someone who's clearly being themselves. I mean, is that something that you're aware of? I mean, do you you witness other politicians behaving in a particular way and think, maybe I should be more like that to get on?
0: Um, Inevitably, people look at politics differently. And, And all politics has this fundamental tension that you want to get into power to do things that you think are important. But to get into power, you have to temper some of the things that you think are important. And there comes a point at which you've tempered so much that you no longer believe in the things that you were motivated by in the first place. On the other hand, if you always stick to the things that you always believed, you never get into power. And there is this tension. You see it very much in Jeremy Corbyn, actually, who has always stuck to what he believes uh, and has oddly got into a certain position of power, but it's very unlikely that he will get into um, full power, actually, as Prime Minister. Uh, and there is this tension in political life, and some people go more one way than, than go another. But, uh, do you have political ambitions beyond being an MP? No. Getting elected in North East Somerset, uh, in, in an odd way, fulfilled my ambition. That I think it would have been different if I hadn't got elected for my home constituency. Um, that, that I tried for lots of other places students and Fives you mentioned and, and so on um, and I think if you're a representative of an area where you don't have deep roots then in a way it's a means to an end mm. but being elected for seat my family's lived in for the best part of 400 years uh, it w- it was an end in itself not, yeah 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 your ancestors yeah. not your current family obviously <laughs> <laughs> I view my ancestors as my family <laughs> yeah. uh,
1: uh, has Cameron ever offered you a job?
0: No, 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 no.
1: Do you think he would? No. Why not? I
0: don't. can't really see what I would bring to his party. I mean, I don't mean as a Conservative yeah. Party, I mean as a mm-hmm. governing party. I think he's um, uh, got excellent people around him. He, do, he doesn't need me. So who do you think will succeed him? A very difficult question. Um, the form in the Conservative Party is that it is never the person you most expect. Uh, The last time it was the person most expected, it was Anton Eden, and that didn't actually work very well. So (coughs) it tends not to be a good idea, as well as um, being unlikely to happen. And you can go back, um, prior to Anton Eden, again, it was rare uh, for the most expected person to to get it. Um, So you then have to think who the candidates will be, when the Prime Minister will go, Uh, assuming he stays till near the next election, it could be somebody um, in ministerial but not cabinet ministerial rank. Uh, My guess is it will be somebody who backs Brexit, not somebody who is supportive of Remain. And that's not because that's my personal view. Uh, It's because the electorate is the members of the Conservative Party in the country at large... And they are overwhelmingly Eurosceptic. And so I think it's unlikely they would vote for a leading light in the Remain campaign. So given that
1: context, who? because Boris is obviously seen at the moment as yeah. the front-runner, he backs Brexit, but he's the front-runner, therefore he sort of falls on that test. I mean, do you think he would definitely make the final ballot?
0: It's a question of whether George Osborne or Boris Johnson is the front-runner at the, at the moment who, who, who holds that particular laurel. Who do you think does? Um, I think until before the budget, George Osborne did, but it may have changed since. Uh, I think um, Boris Johnson is an extremely attractive candidate for the leadership of the party um, and could be unstoppable. <coughs> is he someone that you would support if you asked you to? Um, It's too early that that, that, uh, (laughs) there isn't a contest. Um, But I I admire Boris Johnson. (laughs) He came before the Treasury Select Committee um, just before Easter. Uh, And I'm on the committee, and I looked at the questions the night before, and it was on the whole European issue. There was tough questions on Europe, as I have ever seen. And he was very impressive. Um, He knew a lot of the answers. He had the detail of the answers. (laughs) He'd clearly done his homework, uh, and he is a very, very capable uh, individual. In terms of the others, then, George Osborne, do you think he'd be a good leader? Um, On my rule, on my rule that it won't be somebody who backs Remain, I think that makes it very difficult for him. But other than his sugar tax, most of what he's done as Chancellor has been very effective. The deficit is very much lower than it was. He got the big thing right in 2010. He recognised we couldn't go on spending uh, the way we had been and that if we brought the public finances under control, we could continue to have a loose monetary policy which has (coughs) kept people in their homes and has allowed businesses to survive. So I think he's been a very remarkably successful Chancellor, a very capable man, but no, I don't think he's going to get the leadership because I think he's on the wrong side of the party's... Um, centre of gravity on Europe. So what's your relationship with people like David Cameron and and George Osborne? Do they talk to you often? Not often. They're not consulting me on (laughs) um, what they should do. They've always been, both of them have always been, extremely cordial and polite on the occasions when we meet. I've had very friendly conversations with them, but not many. Um, You know, I'm not not a a regular popping in and out of Downing Street. (laughs)
1: No, but I just... uh, It's interesting to to know, firstly, what leaders' relationship is is like with their backbenchers. You know, a lot of uh, Labour MPs always talk very warmly about Tony Blair, even if they disagreed with him. Does
0: does David Cameron have a similar relationship with Conservative backbenchers? Um, Prime Ministers are very busy, so I don't expect to be talking to him all the time. But yes, I've always had the friendliest relations uh, with the Prime Minister, to the extent that I have relations. I mean, I don't want people to think that I'm chatting the whole time. I'm not. Um, But when I uh, run into him, and he's very good at inviting backbench MPs to Downing Street for events, uh, he has great charm and very good manners, and therefore I've always found that it's been perfectly um, possible to have a very civil conversation with him, uh, even if I've just voted against something that the government's been doing. (laughs) um,
1: and is agitation in the air on the Conservative benches? Because uh, the Prime Minister's question time last week was superb when he had the list and he was having a pop at Corbyn and he rightfully ended by 10 and I thought, I had problems. Um, acknowledging the fact that he's leading a divided party now as a result of this referendum, are people perhaps more open to the fact, do you think, on the back benches that he might leave sooner rather than later?
0: Well, he said he was going to leave. Uh, he set a date for it. Uh, before the election. And that was very sensible um, in being clear with the electorate, which I'm in favour of people being, and setting a timetable. And uh, Margaret Thatcher got herself into trouble when she said she would go on and on and on. Uh, In in a way, it's one of those questions that is very hard to answer well. If you say you're going to go, then everybody starts speculating about who your successor will be. If you say you're going to go on and on, everybody thinks you've um, uh, gone too far. And, And so I think he was on balance, right, to... Do that, but that has led to speculation about his position. Irrespective of the Brexit vote, I think come the 24th of June, all of this will calm down. After all, it is David Cameron who put in the manifesto that we'd have a referendum, will give us the chance to have the vote, and I hope the vote will settle the issue. But then you've got Hindman and Smith resigned.
1: I mean, do you think we'll see any more cabinet resignations before
0: referendum day? I wouldn't have predicted there would have been one. So I doubt there will be another, but you know we get home tonight and switch on the news and find there has been. The, 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 the thing is that startling political events never happen when they've just been predicted. When they've been <laughs> predicted, they seem then to play out over a much longer time frame. All, all the shocks that come out uh, tend to be genuine shocks. In terms of London, then, uh,
1: Zach Goldsmith's the, the Conservative candidate. It feels like he's less of a strong candidate than Boris was, and that As a result, Labour are perhaps in a stronger position than people might have predicted under a Corbyn leadership. Sadiq feels, perhaps instinctively, more like a a strong candidate to Zach. Do you think Zach can win in London?
0: Oh, yes, I think Zach can win and I think Zach will win. Um, uh, I think he will win because if you look at the mayoral contests, they've been won by the more charismatic figure. And I think Zach is more charismatic than Sadiq by quite a margin. though Can I say a nice word about Sadiq? Absolutely. Who, who, who did me a singular kindness, actually, when I was a newly elected MP. Um, it was the first time I voted against the government. And he was and is a very senior Labour Party figure. And he took the trouble to come up to me and say, did I actually know I was voting against the government? Because... <laughs> um, But but No, because when you are a a new MP, (laughs) it's quite confusing sometimes as to which lobby you're meant to be in. And it was an incredibly generous thing to do to save an opposition politician from making a fool of himself in his first couple of months in Parliament. And I just thought that showed uh, a a fundamentally good nature. Um, I still think he's going to lose the mayoralty of London. But but I think he's he's a good egg.
1: I mean, I, I, I like them both. Um, But I, just in terms of how they come across, I think Sadiq has sort of more of a steal about him. I I think Zach has a tendency to sort of think out loud, and maybe that could be seen as charming, but in terms of putting someone in charge of a major economy in London is, it might be, it just feels a little bit weak.
0: Oh no, I think I think um, Zach is titanium plated if you want you know <laughs> um, and, and has proper backbone I, I I think if, if he didn 't he he wouldn 't have come out for brexit. I think that fr- from his point of view in his election, brexit is a sideshow, um, but it 's always been something he 's felt very strongly and he 's had the courage of his convictions. He is a man who believes in what he says and doesn 't mind um, going against the trend that uh, he was in the last Parliament, very outspoken on the issue uh, of recall of useless MPs. Okay. Well, I happen to he's absolutely right. I, I, um, I think the electorate would use this power if given it wisely. I, don't, I, I trust the voters not <laughs> to be pushed about by um, party political tricks. Uh, but Zach didn't necessarily make friends by arguing this case But nonetheless, he put it and he put it very powerfully. So I think he's got backbone. I think he's very, very capable. He is incredibly nice. I mean, a very charming man. And I think he comes across very well to the electorate. He's also very much his own person. He is not a machine uh, politician. And I think that's attractive. Uh, It's something you you have in common, I suppose,
1: the parody.
0: I think we both tend to speak uh, our our minds, yes. Uh, But I take that as a very flattering comment because I'm I'm an admirer of his.
1: Um, in terms of parliamentary life, then, you, you seem to just immediately sort of... I mean, it's been six years since you first elected, but it felt as if you immediately slotted in. And uh, what I find um, <laughs> really funny is, if you sort of Google image search, Jacob Rees, in Parliament, uh, various pictures of you in Parliament not just stood up or sat down, but sort of fully reclined <laughs> almost. I mean, you're very, very comfortable there. I mean, I, I know that the speakers are in the back of the the
0: chairs, but you seem to sort of really spread out. Yes. Well, that- I'm sometimes sitting there for a very long time, <laughs> and, and I have some sympathy with the gentleman over there sometimes. You know, <laughs> eyelids get a bit heavy. <laughs> Though, uh, 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 actually, actually where, where, <laughs> under those circumstances, I do always leave the chamber. I, I, I'm not sure one should be seen dozing off during people's speeches, except... <laughs> um, I think Churchill used to do it sometimes for theatrical effect, but, um, uh, no, I, if you're going to be sitting there for some time, you might as well be comfortable.
1: Um, <laughs> no, I totally agree. It's, it's, I think it's good to see politicians will enjoy being there because there's a whole anti-politics mood at the moment and I don't know if you'd agree with this, but I think there's a danger with too many politicians talking politics as a thing down and it seems like a sort of easy win for a politician standing in front of a crowd and, and say how awful politics is and how it has to change. And I think people would agree with some of that. But equally, I think it's more reassuring to see politicians that say, this is great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a little lie down while I'm there.
0: <laughs> I think I take your broader point rather than the narrow <laughs> one. Um, I think our democracy is absolutely fantastic. I think it is brilliant that once every four or five years people can turn out and chuck the beggars out if they don't like them. <laughs> I think this is so important. Uh, and it, 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 democracy, a free press and the rule of law... Um, make this country and other countries that have that so much stronger. It's that ability to expose what is wrong, to remove it, but also, as you were saying, about why you found politics so exciting. You can vote for the people you really like. You can say, I think the country can be changed for the better if I vote for so-and-so, and that's a great power to have. What if, at the next election, you're one of the beggars that loses their seat? I mean, it'd be heartbreaking, wouldn't it? Look, it, it, it's up to the electorate. Of course I want to be re-elected in North East Somerset, um, but it's, the, the electorate has to have, that, have, has to have that right, and that if I don't live up to the promises that I was elected on or whatever it is, that they will exercise that right, and that's that's important. In terms of being in
1: Parliament, um, it's nice to hear you talk about Sadiq Khan in such a way in the SNP MPs. Do you have friends in various parties? Is there Are particular MPs that you hang about with Maybe in the Conservative Party, but particularly on the opposition
0: benches. Um, yes, I, I mean I've got friends in in different parties. Um, uh, there are a number of my closest friends in the Labour Party lost their seats at the last election. To give you a clue, as to them they were Scottish, yeah. um, <laughs> uh, um, which was was a pity. Uh, um, uh, but absolutely, and I think this is very good for politics. I, I, I think it's important to remember that most people in politics are in politics for the right reasons very few politicians are in to feather their own nest or any of those sorts of things if they want to do that they probably did more easily in another career they just have different views about how best you achieve the um, positive outcome for the country that they want and so it's a question of means not end Uh, and I think the motives of most politicians are much worthier than they often appear I would completely agree, and I, I think a lot of people in this room probably would, and I think the,
1: uh, the silence was probably um, uh, a, a sort of internal applause. Yes, very internal. But I completely agree. What in terms of then uh, the other parts of parliamentary life? I mean, people talk about there being a drinking culture down there. I mean, do you, do you ever get involved in that side of it? No, I
0: don't, actually. <laughs> um... I'm not teetotal, um, uh, and I enjoy uh, drink within reason, but uh, I don't drink if I'm going to speak in the House of Commons. My speeches are quite long enough without being (laughs) drink-fuelled as well. Because, I mean, some some MPs have have garnered an incredible... Eric Joyce
1: uh, obviously got himself into a lot of trouble attacking people when he was drunk. Mark Reckless, apparently, before he defected to UKIP, uh, was so battered on the night of the budget, he had to be physically carried through the
0: voting lobbies. Um, have you seen that sort of stuff? I didn't see that actually. <laughs> I, I, I was unaware of it until it was in the in the newspapers. Um, I, I, um, some cricketers used to have a pint of beer served to them during the drinks interval. It, it's not unknown for people in professional life to drink more than is necessarily good for them. <laughs> um, I, expect, <laughs> I expect some c- comedians enjoy the odd tipple from time to time. Oh um, yeah. Uh, and and yes, this happens. You you've got six hundred and fifty members of parliament. Some may drink more than they should, uh, but by and large, there's I think there's less drink in politics than there is in the city, which is where uh, I've had my professional career. Well, that's right. You set up a uh, company in two thousand and seven uh, in the city.
1: Was that quite
0: sort of drink heavy? Uh, not not <laughs> no, um, but but. Um, Certainly when I went into the city in the early 1990s, um, drink was taken at lunch as a matter of routine. I think that's much less common now. I think there's been a general change in society, actually, towards drink, uh, uh, but that the city used to be quite a a drinking culture.
1: Because they moved Promises Question Time from 3 to 12, because apparently MPs were a little too rowdy Uh, after a long lunch. I love Promises Question Time when it's a bear pit. But that, that isn't a popular view at the moment. I mean, when you're sat in there, in you? what's your view of it? Do you think it's good when it's rowdy? Do you think this must look awful to your constituents?
0: The only bit of um, the parliamentary week that my constituents watch is Prime Minister's questions. Yeah. If it were so awful, they wouldn't watch it. <laughs> and uh, the issues are important. That, that uh, As the Prime Minister, you're defending what your government has done. If you're the opposition, you're trying to explain in a very short space of time, what the government's doing is rotten. Of course it's going to be um, powerful, it's going to be toughly argued. That's absolutely as it should be, that these issues matter. It's not a vicar's tea party. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, and <coughs> uh, uh, people pay attention to it because of that. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a good thing. And that um, most of the parliamentary week, is relatively quiet and relatively thoughtful. But the point in the week at which you are focusing on the biggest political divides is very highly charged, and yeah. I think that's absolutely right. I'm a great defender of Prime Minister's questions, and I think more people like it, um, even if as a slightly guilty pleasure, uh, than <laughs> dislike it. I completely agree. I absolutely love it. and I think if we make it... If we change it sort of in any
1: way to make it less rowdy, I think we'll be worse off as a result. Um... Well, I'm going to open up the floor to questions now. So we'll, we'll have the house lights, and we've got a roving mic somewhere. So if anyone would like to ask uh, Jacob a question, put up your hand. Yes, the fellow down here was the first. Oh, hang on, we'll bring a microphone to you, I think. Have we got one? Hold on, we're just getting hold of it. Just hold that thought. When the microphone does come to you, just uh, let us know your name and then, then ask the question. I think we have got one. Have we got one? Yeah, we do. The Oh probably the EU's fault, isn't it, Jacob? They Bound been... to be. <laughs> Bound to be, yes. Coburn was right. Um, is there anything else we could use? As for the podcast, you see. <laughs> I mean, we've got the microphone there. Oh, yeah, we could use that one. <laughs> the big one that's on stage. <laughs> oh, Would that work? There you go. Golden. Thank you. Oh, it's probably. Use... Oh, this is right, <laughs> off <old place now.
0: laughs>
1: <laughs> Could you just pass it along to the gentleman? It's not usually this uh, slapstick, uh, Jacob. That's right, I like
0: slapstick. <laughs> um, it's been long awaiting this. Actually, um, I'm very interested as a, as a Brexit um, uh, v- voter. Possibly, why do you think, uh, in the event that uh, the UK leaves the uh, EC, that we'll be able to negotiate with the EC in a f- in a in a p- period of time? With all the trade contracts we need, along with, with the US, when Canada took seven years at least to uh, negotiate with the EC, and even then they're not entirely happy with what they got. I thought uh, he was filibustering from eh? Amber. <laughs> uh. <laughs> well, um, the Treaty, Article 50, the Treaty of the Functioning of the European Union, says that there will be a two year period to negotiate the exit of any country that chooses to leave. And actually, I believe that most countries stick to their international agreements. So that side of it, I think, is relatively straightforward. It is laid down as an EU treaty obligation, and I would therefore expect that to happen. The issue with other countries negotiating is that they then have to agree to standards to export to the EU. We already meet those standards, obviously, because we are in the single market, so there's no need for us to adapt our standards to meet the requirements to export. But the key there is that this is about what we export to the EU. It doesn't mean we then have to apply those standards domestically so we can deregulate domestic industry, 95% of which does not trade with the European Union, but the 5% that trade with the European Union would carry on uh, with, with those trade requirements and those standards requirements. Um, I think it is reasonable to assume that the European Union will stick to its own treaty obligations in the same way uh, as we would. That's why I'm confident that it can be done relatively quickly. So you don't think
1: that British firms will now face tariffs to trade with the Eurozone?
0: It's not impossible, but the average tariff under the WTO, the World Trade Organization, uh, for UK goods to Europe is 2.4%. Uh, Now, this is the big difference between 1975. In 1975, tariffs were very, very much higher, and being in a a customs union was of great benefit because all over the world there were very high uh, customs barriers. Uh, Since then, they have declined globally, not just uh, within the EU. And that's why the EU, let alone the UK, uh, imports so much from um, China and the US and so on. Indeed, since we've been members of the EU... Um, UK trade with the EU has grown less quickly than US trade with the EU. So to trade with the EU, you do not need to be uh, in the single market. Okay, I think there was a hand up sort of a... Yes, the lady there.
1: Hello. With regards to the sugar tax, um, I agree that it is pointless for the um, drinks, but what do you think that we can do to tackle the obesity problem?
0: Um... I mean, I think the, the decline in the consumption of sugar is quite interesting as a, as a side issue prior to the tax. Uh, it's, it's very difficult um, for governments to impose healthy eating habits on the population at large. I think it needs to be done to some extent through education and what people uh, learn at school, to some extent um, by example. Um, but not Jamie Oliver. <laughs> 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 well, i I'm not sure people want to be lectured. I, I think that sort of... People need to be free to lead their own lives and people need to be allowed to make mistakes as well as to get things, things right. Um, I, I think uh, the... Uh, the fashion industry gets very heavily criticised for the body image that it presents, but it presents a thin body image rather than a fat body image, and so... I don't think that is entirely bad, that what you're encouraging people to do, what you're putting in the newspapers as attractive, is not obesity. So there is a degree of encouragement for people to to avoid it. Uh, But I I do think um, you need to look at uh, issues that there may be in schools when young children are getting obese and whether schools can play any role in discussing things with parents, warning them of the risks... I think people are much more likely to change their behaviour if they understand why, rather than if they simply are told what to do from on high, and therefore using the mechanisms that are already in place is probably better than uh, issuing Whitehall fiats. So uh, in
1: terms of the state intervention, then, all kids are going to state schools, then uh, most kids are going to state schools, then shouldn't they then just only provide healthy food? Would that be a liberal?
0: Well, the, the difficulty with that, I visit quite a lot of schools and sometimes I eat school lunches, but you notice all the children wolf down the chips much more than they wolf down the lettuce leaves. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, I, 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 see, I, I see that with my own children, that, that uh, you've got to have a balance in these things, that, that um, you need to give people food that they will enjoy uh, as much as um, telling them that they need to eat healthily. And if uh, there's a balance of good food, and the extent to which food is home prepared, that the stunning things about sugar and salt is that um, when you look at the figures that are put in newspapers... and I don't want to hold myself up as a nutritional expert. I'm not. Uh, uh, um, so, I, I, you know, if there's a professor of nutrition in here who wants to challenge me, please come on to the stage. Um, I'm sorry, it's your show. I shouldn't... Oh, no, be, no, no, no. I shouldn't invite people on. But, um, <coughs> but the astonishing thing is the extent which processed foods has enormous amounts of sugar and salt in that people don't know about. So I think allowing people to know, and if you can, encouraging people... Um, to some extent to prepare their own food, and then, then these problems drop away.
1: OK. Any questions from that sort of... Can we just have the house lights up a little bit because I'm just aware that I can't see people. Just a touch. Oh, yes, the fellow is absolutely really waving there. Hi. Hi, yeah. Hi, thanks very much. That's right, mate. Uh, first of all, congratulations on the uh, birth of your uh, recent baby. Thank um, My question is, as a as a father, would you... Given the distrust in modern politics, would you wish for any of your children to embark on politics as a career?
0: Oh, oh yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I think... Uh, politics is essentially public service, and I think it is a wonderful calling. It's a very rewarding one. It's a very interesting one. Um, and I... I I I think it is a good thing to do. I think it's good for society that people are willing to to do it Um, and that all of you should do it too. I mean, it it needs good people to get involved and I'm not saying that I am therefore a good person, but there are probably good people in this room who ought to be doing it, who would be better than the people who are currently doing it. I think it is a genuinely noble calling and people shouldn't be put off uh, by the brickbats that come with it. My poor children will possibly be completely put off by politics by the time they're uh, delivered a 1,000 leaflets for me at each election. Uh, Yes, there's a fellow stood under the light there who looks uh, very keen.
1: Hi there. Um, Not sure I agree with your assessment of the long-term economic implications of leaving Europe. What do you think about the short-term implications? Would there be a sort
0: of market crash in this country? Would there be implications for jobs, for the value of sterling? What do you think about that? Um, Short-term predictions of markets are, and I'm speaking as a professional fund manager rather than as a politician, uh, are always wrong. That you might just as well stick your finger in the air and guess that markets move in the short term not based on fundamentals but simply based uh, on sentiment within the market, which can change very quickly. Um, So what do I think Is, is... is likely to happen in that broad context of short-term market predictions. Um, I think sterling uh, has become overvalued for a number of reasons, particularly relating to our current account deficit, uh, and that, therefore, it's not surprising that it's fallen against the dollar in the last few months anyway, that it's remained quite stable against the euro because of the problems within the eurozone markets. Uh, I would not be surprised if there was some short-term volatility... Uh, around the vote as people seek to um, take positions and speculate around it. Um, But that will be very short-term. The the thing to remember, and I'm sorry to bore everybody with Article 50 again, but nothing changes the day after we leave. Everything is in place, and there is this two-year time frame uh, in which to renegotiate, and it is in our gift when we start that two-year period. So the very distinguished John Cunliffe, who is... um, Uh, on the um, Financial Policy Committee and was UCCREP, the UK representative in the European Union, uh, said that in these circumstances, his advice and experience as a civil servant would be that you start the two-year period at the point at which you know what to ask for and you have a pretty good idea of what your uh, allies are going to give you. And that seemed to me a fairly sensible approach to it. So nothing changes on the 24th of June. You then enter a period of negotiation with a two-year time frame uh, clicking in and therefore there is much more stability in leaving than the scare campaign would have you believe there would be no direct British job losses from leaving the European Union that you see enormous investment is coming through into this country even as it looks as if we might lose um, uh, leave sorry not lose mm-hmm. um, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> Freudian. <laughs> um, well, l- l- lose from the point of view of the Remainers. Um, uh, but, but the, the, the um, uh, German uh, takeover of the London Stock Exchange is, I think, a £21 billion pound deal. That's a huge amount of money, a huge statement of faith uh, in the UK economy if everyone's, so worried about Brexit. So um, I, 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 I think there's no reason to suppose that there will be job losses in relation... Uh, to our leaving. It's very hard to see why jobs would be lost, that if we produce goods that people want to buy, they will carry on buying them. Uh, our domestic economy is one of the stronger ones in the European Union. Our unemployment rates are so much lower than those in most other EU countries. Our youth unemployment, youth unemployment in Great Britain, it's about 13, and Great Britain, I don't have the figure for the United Kingdom, so excluding Northern none, is 13.6%. In Greece, it's 48%. In Portugal, I think it's 47%. In Italy, it's 37%. There are these tragic high youth unemployment rates uh, in other EU member states. The EU is not the panacea of economic prosperity that the remainers would have you believe it is.
1: Okay. Is there anyone on the balcony that would like to ask a question? Yes, there is. Um, Just bear with us. There's there's a microphone coming. If you just give us your name before you ask the question, as well, that would be helpful. Thank you.
0: Um, Hi, thanks. My name is um, Rachel. I just want to ask you about something we haven't really covered as much this evening, but you've talked a lot about in the past about your support for parliamentary tradition and upholding some of the traditions we have. But two main criticisms of those traditions can be that they are slow and inefficient and take up a lot of time. Um, so we can't be as quick and responsive as we could be, but also that they um, put a lot of people off and maybe prevent Parliament from being as diverse as it could be. Um, So how would you respond to those criticisms of those traditions? Um, On the first point, I think making law ought to be difficult. Um, The law is very important. It changes our lives, it can affect our lives, it can make us better or worse, off. it can send us to prison. And that if you're going to do that, there should be a deliberative process that allows the issues to be thought through properly. So, yes, have a second reading debate where you discuss the general issues. Have it in a committee of the House of Commons where every line is gone through. Have a report stage where it comes back to the floor of the House and every Member of Parliament may put down an amendment to it. Then a third reading, which is is essentially a formality nowadays. And then send it to the Lords for the same thing. Ease of changing laws is the virtue of a tyranny. And if we are a democracy, the rights of minorities have to be protected and the executive must not be able immediately to get its way. Efficiency in a legislature is simply a very authoritarian executive and so I defend the slowness as a constitutional good. I, I, however, accept some of your point uh, on putting off people. I, I mentioned this on filibustering needs to be an occasional thing, not a regular habit. I I think Fridays, when we have private members' bills... Well, I've done my fair share of filibustering. Uh, uh, Now, now look, 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 I think that's got to look ridiculous. And I think it is not good for Parliament that we should have that for 13 weeks of the year. And I think that needs to be uh, reformed. I, I think it is important that Parliament has people from all walks of life who are interested in it, who want to contribute to it. Um, And that's why I always encourage people to get involved in politics because it is such an interesting thing to do. There are so many opportunities uh, in politics and people should feel that it is open to them. And that isn't necessarily our traditions because actually when people get there, people from all sorts of different backgrounds suddenly realise that there is some purpose behind the traditions that they are doing something beneficial rather than b- merely being uh, flim flam. I, I, the baubles of ceremonial I do not find enormously exciting. I think you only want ceremonial where it is emphasizing something that is real.
1: Like black rods, for instance,
0: on the State of Minneapolis. But, that, but I actually think that's. You, is you really, are absolutely yeah. right yeah. that. When Parliament, when the Commons reassembles after the Queen's speech, the first thing we do is have um, the first reading of the Bill on Outlawries. This Bill has never had more than a first reading. Uh, It is a mere formality to show that the legislature is independent of the executive. And this is important as a statement, a reminder, every year that we're not there just to do what the government tells us. We are there to represent our constituents. And these little reminders pass by. They don't take a lot of time. And Rod bang on the door. Um, the executive does not have the right to order the House of Commons about. That The only people who have the right to order us about are the voters. And so these bits of ceremonial remind us of something very important. That's not to say that some bits don't get, lose their value over time and sometimes you can uh, get rid of them. And uh, I mean In the 1960s they got rid of the great ceremonial around uh, the Royal Assent to Bills and that was a sensible thing to do because the Royal Assent had become a mere formality and therefore interrupting business for everybody to troop over the House of Lords to listen to some words of uh, Norman French was not necessarily a sensible use of time. And and so, when things need to be got rid of, I'm in favour of getting rid of them. But a lot of these things are symbolically important.
1: Um, Because there's been, (coughs) I was going to say, a big debate, but a relatively small debate about printing um, acts of parliament on vellum. Is that something that you support, or should we go paper? uh, um, Vellum, which is a sort of. I mean, it's not veal, is it the right word? It is veal. It's it's
0: exactly the same derivation as veal. Um, uh, So, strictly vellum is from uh, calf, though it's also from other other animals. Dead Um, ones, I mean, yeah. Yeah, Yes, yes. um, uh, uh, um, uh, Obviously. It would
1: be very, very arcane if it was printed onto live livestock. Um,
0: I am marginally in favour of keeping the printing on vellum. I'm not losing sleep over it. Um, I I think law is important and that law ought to be permanent. And vellum lasts for hundreds if not thousands of years and therefore there is a marginal symbolic importance in using vellum and the cost. This is one of the frustrations. that People say, well, when we get rid of vellum, it will save £80,000 a year. The Houses of Parliament cost £500 million pounds a year to run. There are probably very big savings we could make if we looked at it thoroughly and worked out that we didn't need 800 peers, for example, and we are cutting the number of Members of Parliament. You cut Members of Parliament by 50 and you begin to save some quite serious money. Whereas £80,000 a year, people think, oh, we've had a saving, that's wonderful, ignoring the other £499 etc., that is, is still being spent. Indeed. Um, Jacob, it's been an absolute
1: pleasure um, having you here tonight. Um, the next show at the end of April is with the uh, SNP leader in Westminster, Angus Robertson, and at the end of May, I'll be joined by the Liberal Democrat leader Tim Farron. Uh, thanks again for all of you for coming out tonight and for the wonderful questions, but please give a massive thank you to Jacob Rees-Mogg. Well, there you go, Jacob Rees-Mogg. What an absolutely top bloke, and he was just a, a delight. as So many guests have been, but uh, a delight to spend company with, and you could feel the audience really draw into him uh, and really uh, were on the edge of their seats at times in the way he was speaking. It's fascinating to speak to someone so articulate around the EU debate at the moment, and I'm sure people will have their own views on whether they agreed or disagreed with him, which will always be the case with these shows. Um, but he expresses himself so well and in such a respectful way, and it is so refreshing to hear someone talk in a very principled way and to disagree with. The people that he disagrees with, but on terms that are so uh, really quite delightful. Um, he was brilliant. Uh, the next show is at the end of April, and my guest is the leader of the SNP in Westminster, Angus Robertson. So I'm very excited to speak about someone who is a, a genuine talent in the House of Commons. If you watch him at Prime Minister's Questions on Wednesdays, genuinely holds uh, the-, the the audience and his fellow MPs. Um, they're captivated by him. He- he's-, he's so good. Um, and then at the end of May, it's Tim Farron, the leader of the Liberal Democrats. I'll be announcing the guests for June shortly, and the shows for the rest of the year are on sale as well. As always, thank you very much for downloading this. If you've come to the live shows, thank you very much, and whatever you can do to spread the word is um, very much appreciated. Thank you very much. ta